Welcome to Ask of Expert, brought to you by the team at Vexit.com. Our bi-weekly series is the podcast helping business owners, managers, and professionals thrive in the world of modern work. Here's this week's host, Polly Craig. Well, hello, and thank you for being here. I can't wait to tell you about today's show. And before we get started, I'm going to take a minute and respond to an email I received. By the way, I'd love to hear from you. Whether you have questions, suggestions for guests, or just feedback, you can contact me directly at podcast at vexit.com. And remember, that's Vexit with two X's. So here's the email. Hey, Polly, I love getting access to all the free knowledge Vexit provides from your professionals. But as a business owner, I would really appreciate hearing from other entrepreneurs who are in the trenches and would be willing to share their experiences and how they work with professionals. Wow, I love this. So the reason we provide access to all the expertise and knowledge is to help you navigate through life's important moments, whether that's for business or personal. It's really about being with you on your journey towards that moment of eventually needing to hire a professional. We know that people want to buy from people they know, like, and trust. So giving visibility to professionals in our network, who, by the way, have already been vetted for you, allows you the opportunity to get to know them and discover what type of expertise you actually need. Then, when you reach that destination of seeking to connect and hire a professional, we've got you covered because Vexit at its core is a digital marketplace. We're a platform that's a sophisticated matching algorithm. It was built for you, and it's easy, putting you in the driver's seat. Enter your need, and the algorithm matches you with up to three professionals who meet your specific requirements. But the listener who sent me the email has a good point. Learning from other people through shared experiences adds another unique dimension. So that brings us to today's episode, because we are thrilled to be doing just that, bringing you our first entrepreneurial feature. You're in for a treat, because today we have two guests, and I'm actually going to have one of them take the lead on hosting because that way he's going to ask all the right questions. My co-host today is Brad Houghton, a passionate and experienced entrepreneur in the restaurant industry. Be sure and listen carefully because what Brad shares is absolutely going to cross over into any industry. Brad is the owner and president of Eats Enterprises, a franchise group for Moxie's restaurants with 22 units across Canada and the U.S., also joining us today is the culinary extraordinaire, Mike Del Buono. Mike is the managing owner of Burnley Place Hospitality, Inc., and went from being a single restaurant operator to now the managing owner of three restaurant ventures. If you have reason to be in Winnipeg, you can check out his remarkable concepts, King and Bannatine, Second Spot, and Nola. Fun fact, Nola's head chef is Canadian culinary icon Emily Butcher, star of the Top Chef Canada Season 9. We're so thrilled to have both of you with us today. Welcome to the show, Mike and Brad. Yeah, thanks for having us on, Polly. It's going to be uh, a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah, Polly. Really looking forward to it as well, too, Polly. Yeah, it's going to be fun to put Mike under the microscope because he has had no pressure up till this point this week. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, we're going to dive right in here. Uh, Brad, I'm going to get you to kind of take the reins here. I want you both to go through and share your experiences. As I highlighted, Brad, I know that you are a very experienced owner-operator of restaurants, but you also are an investor in other businesses and have insight and have helped many businesses on your entrepreneurial journey. So why don't I hand it over to you and see where we start off and we'll just keep it going. 
Um, I got into the restaurant business right out of university because uh, a lot of doors closed with my university career, <laughs> but the restaurant door opened, you know, like many entrepreneurs that will be on this call. It's sometimes not the cleanest entrance into your business, but as soon as I got into the restaurant industry, I knew I loved it. Uh, but I probably spent the first decade in the restaurant industry uh, getting into the ownership side of it kind of early in uh, small equity pieces of ventures that I got involved with. But almost that first eight to 10 years was bumping around and doing it the hard way, you know, being involved in ventures. And we'd, we'd make a little bit of money, but we, we struggled a little bit. And then, you know, I realized early in my venture that I needed to get in with some people that were making money and surround myself with some really smart people. So I decided kind of around the age of 30 to transition across and work in a franchise model. And that was quite a few years back when they were really emerging as a good idea. My thoughts at that point in time were to get in and really operate with people that were doing well and making money and then set my goal on becoming a multi-unit franchisee with inside their ecosystem and uh, accomplish that. And then over the past 27 years now, we've opened, you know, probably 30 restaurants, closed about six and I guess we're up to a couple of thousand employees. We're working inside three provinces or four provinces, I think, and and in two states in the U.S. now. And I think our revenues are up to about $110 million annually Canadian. We have about 2,000 employees. Uh, It's been a really cool ride. You know, lots of lessons, lots of war wounds, but a fantastic journey. That's kind of the... I guess, 10,000 foot view of where we're at and where my business is at. And I'd like to, you know, flip it across to Mike now and maybe do a quick introduction as well with yourself, Mike. I started in hospitality when I was about 18. My first job was in a factory making drill bits overnight. And a friend poked me one day and said, there's a new restaurant opening. You should come work with us. I made the switch and I was was hooked from day one. Uh, You know, it was an exciting atmosphere to be a part of. I, I just really fell in love with everything that was to do with hospitality, um, team mentality, the excitement, um, and just uh, it, it just a very unique place to work. And then my, my journey to where I am now kind of started, like a lot of people that are getting in entrepreneurship, where, you know, I was, uh, was working in a place that uh, for a long time, I, I was just looking at it and, and, and seeing like, I, I think I can do this. And I think I can do this a little bit better. There's things that I'd like to do a little differently. Um, but I also kind of wanted to do that in a way that I was designing a lifestyle for myself. And uh, so I, I, after finishing my business degree in entrepreneurship, um, started my search for, for a location. And uh, in uh, 2017, we uh, opened up King of Bannatine, which is our first, uh, first concept, uh, a quick service. It's a premium sandwich shop. Uh, we do a lot of hand carved slow roast meat sandwiches in a, more of a full service atmosphere. Um, yeah, we're in downtown Winnipeg in the exchange district, uh, which is like our arts and culture district, if you will. A lot of things changed in that first uh, first little while. Uh, we've been open for almost eight years now. Uh, it will be in November. When we first started, I had uh, kind of what I thought was a roadmap of where I was going that would follow kind of the path that Brad went on, which was more of a, a franchise model. Brad's been a, a mentor to me um, for a long time. And so I was looking at that as, as a really valid option but over time when things change and and people left and we restructured the company and i really started to look at where i wanted to be as a person and what i wanted my career to look like and i now have much more of a a solid framework that i've put together um over the years with help from groups like eo to where i want to be and 
And uh, we, we've kind of shifted gears. And now I just opened up my second concept and soon to be actually tomorrow is opening uh, number three, the second spot there and crossing over into a new part of the industry, a new segment, which is full service for me and kind of repositioning myself in the whole restaurant segment as much more of a uh, owner operator and partner to the to the key people in the business. Yeah, it's, it's been a kind of a crazy journey over, of course, the last couple of years, but uh, we're really excited about things to come. And I'm, I'm really excited about where we're at right now and, and personally, you know, where, where I've arrived uh, in the business. Mike worked with inside my company, and I think that motivated him to run kicking and screaming in the opposite direction and go out and start his own thing. And I'd like to take credit for motivating Mike to go out and find a better boss, which is himself. But what was very interesting with Mike, and I think it's really important for you know anybody, any entrepreneur, and there's lots of different entry points to any business, but the restaurant business I have found, because I've had the unique experience of observing so many people get into the restaurant industry for all the wrong reasons. It's it's one of those things. There's a high sex appeal to the restaurant business and people like to get into it and uh, they like to come in and most often they fail. And you hear about the high failure rate with restaurants, but with Mike, you know, he, he earned his way in, you know, he worked really hard throughout the years in the industry. He had a vision for what he wanted to do. Uh, to enter the business and what and you know and, and what his concept would look like, and I found that quite fascinating. That Mike got in, and then he really got a, a great shop going. Conceptually, came up with a good idea that the marketplace received very well. Uh, but then, as he was on his entrepreneurial jury, journey, we we talked quite a bit, and Mike had a, a vision for not just running and operating one restaurant, but Mike had what I thought was just a fantastic vision for how he wanted to transition his business. I'll have him paint more of the picture of this, but at the end of the day, Mike, um, you know, Mike saw a very natural weakness inside our industry, which is so often young chefs that are very talented decide to take their culinary skills and open their own business for the first time. The challenge is it's an incredibly complicated thing to do because opening a restaurant uh, is really complex. And being able to operate a kitchen, being able to serve amazing dishes to customers, that is the most guest-facing thing. And that's what most people really focus on, whether they're watching Top Chef shows or whether they're watching many of their favorite celebrity chefs. The really challenging part, though, is that so many young chefs that come out that are really talented fail miserably in their in, when they first open restaurants because really the business of opening a restaurant is entirely different. The chef piece, if it was a pie, might make up 33% of that. And about 66% of it is, hey, at the end of the day, like, how do you do a lease? How do you find a lawyer? How do you find an accountant? How do you write a business plan? Like, what's the overview of where you want to be? And does that even make sense business-wise or just kind of wing it and open up and say, I'm great at producing food? And, you know, Mike had this idea, and he and I riffed on this more than once, which is, wouldn't it be very interesting if somebody can come along and provide a safe haven for these chefs to come out and partner with them and say, you know, at the end of the day, you've got these amazing culinary skills, but why don't we bring you into a joint venture? And why don't we slowly work you in to the shallow end of the pool and make sure that your amazing culinary skills don't get destroyed by a failed business around it for all the wrong reasons. So, I mean, that's a long-winded introduction, but Mike, do you mind if we jump in on this and you can explain a little bit of the vision you had to transition from hands-on owner-operator carving out your beautiful sandwiches 
to kind of next level and, and, you know, how, what your vision was for, you know, joining, you know, your amazing chef now and creating this new model, which I think is a fantastic platform, by the way. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, uh, it took a while to arrive, as you know, like we, we talked about it for years, but um, I guess I'd start back at where I kind of touched on, which is where originally where I got into opening my own restaurant, which is, I was working at a place where, you know, I just thought there were some things I could do better. And I kind of wanted to build a different lifestyle for myself. And so when it came time to open a restaurant, you kind of take what you learned from the places that you worked and the experience that you had and what do you want? What do you don't want? And yeah, we, we, when we first opened the sandwich shop, you know, I had this idea that when you get into quick service, kind of the, the easy way to do it and kind of like, you know, the model out there is quick service is all, you know, you replicate, you copy, you, you, you copy and paste, right. You, you do the franchise model and a couple years into it, and it was really when, uh, in 2017, my original chef, Tyrone Welchinski, who opened the restaurant with us, he decided to leave. And that was after we had presented him with an offer to, you know, buy into the company um, and be a, be a part of it, uh, which was something that we always wanted to have on the table for, for him because he was such a big part of it. Um, but what ended up happening was uh, we, we, we hired a chef to take over for him and spent about a month training and put all the resources into him. And four or five days before he started, he said, you know what, the place that place I'm at right now is Kip's throwing my money at me and I can't say no. So he, he took off and I was left with kind of a decision of, do I scramble to try and find somebody and plug them into this and just hope that it works? Or do I grab the reins myself and just really get a hold of how this thing operates from both sides? And, uh, I decided to do that and I decided to, to jump in myself and, and build a team around me. And uh, I learned just an absolute ton uh, about how the business really operates and how I really want it to look. But I also learned the most important thing was down the road, what I wanted my actual involvement in the business to be and what I wanted the end goal. And in the end, my career and my lifestyle to look at, because what I was facing was the original plan of, cut and copy and paste and 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 put these things in new cities and new markets and well when you look at that my life becomes getting on a plane two or three times a week to fly to different cities to check up on restaurants and connect with staff that i really have no have no connection with and um i i, I really discovered that my my true passion and my true goal was to build a community of restaurants here in winnipeg that I could have my finger on the pulse, that I could have a connection with my staff, that I could work in building the brands. Because one thing I, I definitely discovered was, was that my, my passion lied in the building of brands, the building of teams, the building of, of a different experiences and designing of restaurants. And it wasn't so much standing behind the counter, carving brisket sandwiches for people, which is fun for a while, but uh, you know, it's, as we're all entrepreneurs, we get an itch to do other things and we get an itch to grow and we get uh, a desire to keep going and getting in the trenches really, really got me to realize that. And so I had to start looking at the end goal and where I want it to be and, and start building a roadmap of how to get there. And you kind of touched on just where we landed and what I saw was a bit of a, a gap in the market in that, there's a lot of incredibly talented people, especially here in Winnipeg, 
we're fortunate to have a really robust restaurant scene and a lot of really cool events that showcase local chefs. But a lot of the time, and not to knock you know anyone in the industry, but a lot of the time, the culinary side doesn't have the the education and the knowledge and the skills to run the operations, like Brad mentioned, like a business. A lot of people see an empty space and they say, like, I'm going to jump in there and start cooking food and not knowing that you got to do accounting and payroll and marketing and deal with lawyers and sign leases that, you know, 10 years down the road might come to bite you. But that's where I really saw an opportunity for myself to kind of shift gears to create a more of a hospitality management group, which is now Burnley Place Hospitality, where we come to the table with those skills. We know how to look at leases. We know how to deal with lawyers. We know how to get loans from the bank. We know how to deal with suppliers and we know how to staff. We know how to build brands, design restaurants. I want my culinary team to focus on what they do best because aces in their places, we want them to be cooking. But along the way, we also want them to learn how to operate a business properly. So finding the right people to partner with is key and and partnering with them was something that we really wanted from the get-go and like i mentioned before we offered my original chef shares in the restaurant and we're now with this new restaurant and the one right about to open we're we're kind of building a template on what does it look like to bring in a partner early in what's the model look like where we are starting a business knowing that we are going to reserve shares for someone like a chef, like a manager, that they can buy in and be a part of the action so that they can have the pride of ownership, but also so that I know we've got someone in the building that's caring about the place like I do so that I can go on and build the next one. You brought up a fantastic point, Mike, and I would like to double click on this because I know that people are listening or thinking, listen, I've got, I've got this fantastic business, but how do I scale? And Mike made a fantastic point when he was talking. He said early on, he kind of couldn't imagine getting on planes and going to market to market and what his life might look like. And I absolutely loved that when I got to go with Mike. And I really thought, you know, what, what a, a great foresight to understand that later in life as you build a family and do things like this, you might not want to be in a plane. And I thought I could share a moment of my story because when I first got into the franchising game, you know, my first vision was, I'm going to move to Winnipeg. I'd like to build five of our Moxie's brands in Winnipeg. I can be the regional manager and just bounce between them. And that way I can kind of, I hope to optimize my ability to kind of be there in my business, just like Mike's talking about and have that ownership mentality, but like everything else in life and like everybody, you know, you have to iterate constantly. And early on in the game, very similar to yourself, Mike, you know, how you identified a chef and you wanted to partner with them. Early in the game, I realized that if I wanted to actually scale and not be on a plane, and we wanted to take this, I, you know, I reverse engineered this really and said to myself, well, if we're going to build in Ottawa, where we are, or Toronto, where we are, or Miami, where we are, or Dallas, or Houston, or any of these markets, how might that look? Like at the end of the day, how am I going to be able to scale that? And so I think early on when we had a look at it, we just said to ourselves, or I said to myself, we're going to have to work with the shared equity model here. Early on in the game, I was able to buy a piece of the restaurant that I worked in. And that was the best thing I ever backed into in my life because I was highly motivated by it. So as we scaled, you know, literally the first few employees that I had that I identified as people that I thought could be a great manager, 
early on, I would sit down with them and chat with them and say, hey, what, what's your future look like? What are you studying at university? Uh, you seem to have a real talent for the restaurant business. Would you be interested in listening to my vision about how we might be able to scale this business and how you could be involved? And you know, we're at a point now where I, I think we were going back and reviewing this. I think I've got waiters that I hired and culinary people that were 19, 20, 21 that have been with our company 25 years now, and they own significant pieces of our business. Whenever we would go out and plant a flag in a new market, I would take anybody that, you know, that we had that was kind of proven and we would carve them into equity models. So our people up the, the food chain that would be multi-unit operators would get a larger piece. And then we would always reserve a piece for each kind of one of our general managers or chef in each one of these buildings. Because I, I think that the foundation of our company that's really core is we, we, we have a lot of people that feel like they're owners because they are owners. They've got equity. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Can you dive into a little bit more detail? Like if we say equity, what does that look like? Mike's going into it now. You've been in it and you've been, uh, as I understand, you know, quite a, you know, a mentor and guiding light for Mike as he's been developing out his concept. Can you just share a little bit more meat on the bone there? Sure. It's a great question, Polly, because Mike and I riff on this a little bit and he's going to have his vision for it. But my vision initially was an abundance model. I really felt like, you know, at the end of the day, the old cliche, but I want, I would much rather own a smaller piece of a much larger entity than a large piece of a smaller entity. And so when we got into it, I would actually sit down and I think in, in the restaurant business, it's counterintuitive. My very first business partner I had, we worked together. I think he was 24 at the time. And we, we laughed because I was convincing him to move to Calgary with me and, and open our very first Moxies. And he said, you know, Brad, I've got $3,000 in credit card debt and not a dime to my name. How can I buy into a restaurant? And I said, Hey, wait, we have a magic, <laughs> we have a magic formula. And, you know, at that point in time, and it was really a core of it. And Mike and I have talked about this, but it was a little bit, I said, you know, Darren, you know how the one good thing is, you know how to operate a profitable restaurant. He says, yes, I do. I said, you know how to build the budgets, you know how to do everything financially. Yes, I do. And I said, great. Yeah, because I've worked with you and you're fantastic and people love working for you and you can run a profitable restaurant. And that is the core piece. Anybody that's listening, you know, you, you know, if you can run a profitable business like these people, I said, great. Well, then the ownership part's really easy. So in a case like that, we would I would generally carve out about 30% of the of a restaurant. And I would I would work with my young person and I would show him how to go out and raise shares. And quite often we do that together. We would build a business model and we would talk about how to go get shareholders and how to leverage kind of free shares in these businesses. By doing that, we would go to shareholders. Shareholders, we would have to make sure that they get their return on invested capital because at the end of the day, we said, you know, at the end of the day, none of us have rich parents. So we're really going to have to treat our shareholders well because we're going to want to go back to those same shareholders and ask them for more money. So restaurant industry is historic for 
poor returns, you know, and they're always selling the dream. And so we would just sit right down. And as we would scale, any of my regional people in an area that I'm not going to get on a plane and travel to would usually have 30% of any new venture that we're doing, Polly. And then general managers and chefs might have up to 10% of it. And my VP of operations would take 30% and I would. So I would go into a new venture in Ottawa. I'd own 30% of that restaurant. My VP of operations would own 30 and my regional manager would own 30. And then we usually reserve 10 for uh, somebody like uh, the general manager and chef team. And we found that that was really good to scale geographically. Go back to Mike, because we've talked about this as well, about how you would ease a young chef into the picture. I mean, maybe Mike could even talk about number one, how you identified a location how much you want to cost to build a restaurant. Because I know with us, one of the biggest and most important things is some of these fundamentals. Restaurants look sexy, but at the end of the day, you know, when we're going to do a new venture, we know when we're building out that venture, whatever it costs us to build that restaurant, whether it be two or $3 million to get it built, we better be doing about one and a half dollars of sales for every dollar of development cost. In other words, you spend $1 million to build a restaurant, you better be doing $1.5 million in annual sales to get the returns for shareholders. And I know I just mashed up two ideas and probably did a poor job, but I know that you know there's a few things with Mike. He was identifying an empty space that he saw because of COVID. It was a fantastic opportunity to come in and buy at a low cost. But with inside that, he also had a vision for sharing equity eventually with his uh, you know, future partner where they have to figure out whether they work well together, but then there's a sliding scale to the equity piece to really paint an amazing story and hopefully a captive story for a young chef that's going to come across with all the talent in the world to eventually transition into ownership. Well, one of the, one of the things that I think I didn't like about let's say the the model that uh, that you guys really, no offense to you on anything, but was the giant build-out cost that you front on every restaurant. One of the things that I really wanted to get away from was spending multi-million dollars on building out. And, you know, my first location here, King and Bannatyne, was a fresh build. It was a shelf space. And, you know, we spent just shy of half a million dollars on it, which is not even close to what you guys build out restaurants for. But you know, you get you get the real full feel of what it is to pay the bill on a half million dollar loan uh, with a restaurant. And thankfully, you know, we, we were real popular uh, in, in town and we did really well and we paid that loan off in five years. But I came back to the table when it was time to look at number two. And I said, I don't want to do that again. Like in the time that I paid off my loan, I watched a number of restaurateurs in the city take an old Quiznos and flip it into a high-end restaurant that is cranking out $80 guest check averages. And uh, they're spending under a hundred grand in renting business places. And I looked and I said, that is a model I can get behind. And yeah, so this, yeah. this latest uh, restaurant and kind of what we're doing going forward is looking at renovating old spaces that have the bones. So you don't have to do the upfront costs of the plumbing, the electrical, everything like that. Uh, hood vents are always a big one. And we, we took over a space that closed because of COVID that is a little bit unique in that it has uh, two units combined. So we, that's why we're opening two spots at once. Again, going back to King and Bannatyne, like it was the tab that you spend on taking a, a shelf space and, you know, you get all the, the benefits of having a space exactly the way you want it to look. You know, we get our washrooms here. We have our counters here for this service. And this is where our dish area is going to go. This is where the walk-ins, everything's going to be designed from scratch with custom, which is really nice. But the monthly loan paid, paid back to have that is, is a lot heavier. And so 
when I was looking at this space um, that was an existing restaurant, uh, I quickly started to realize that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be going into this thing and spending less than half that I spent uh, building out King of Bannatyne to not only have a restaurant that's going to be churning out more sales, but I'm actually getting a bonus second restaurant out of it because of the unique space that it has. Uh, so I'm, you know, another sandwich shop and a full service restaurant. The full service was really important for me because that was a bridge that I wanted to cross. Being the quick service sandwich guy for years, I really wanted to start working with local independent chefs and crossing over into that full service was was a crucial piece of that. So finding a restaurant that had all the bones and the structure that a chef would need to execute was really important. I mean, on paper, the numbers just make sense. I mean, you're you're going in and someone's done all the upfront work and all the upfront costs. Now we're amortizing loans over a little bit longer period. We're going to get our shareholders paid back a little bit quicker. But looking at the shared equity model, which I know we touched on before, that was something that we we looked at really early on with my original chef. And the kind of plan that we came up with was actually a, a bit of a, a combination of a sweat equity and a buy-in model where we would reserve X number of shares uh, for the chef that would be given or gifted through labor over a five-year period, given in incrementally every year, but then there'd also be every year an annual buy-in to match that so that it was a combination of putting in time, but also putting in equity for shares in the business. Because these guys, you know, especially in the culinary scene, they're grinding, they're grinding super hard. And yes. there's not a lot of opportunity for people out there to get in on ownership. And so for us, I, you know, I share the exact same mentality of Brad in that I would much rather have a smaller slice of a larger pie uh, than the traditional restaurateur that is the guy who dies behind the grill flipping burgers because he doesn't trust anybody else to do it because he wants everything himself. So did you have professionals that helped you set this up or where did you go to get the information? Because it sounds like, you know, whether it's options or you've got tax structures and other things to contend with, did you use a lawyer, accountant, who all gets involved in that to help you? Definitely all of the above. It is a team effort day in and day out in the dining room, but it's also a team effort every day looking from the business from the outside. Again, fortunate enough to have people like Brad and my father in my life um, that understand these things. But getting lawyers involved from the very beginning was really important because once we went from one location to two and three locations, we had to look at the end goal and what we wanted this company to look like. And we had to really do some restructuring. And that restructuring depends heavily on the advice that lawyers and accountants are going to give us. For us and, you know, for where we wanted to head, I wanted to have a model of we're going to open more restaurants. I'm now going to have a separate company that is managing and operating these restaurants that has a different payment structure. Uh, but I also want to reserve shares for each one of my operating partners in every restaurant going forward. So what does that look like legally now so that down the road we can build these things along the way? And what are the tax implementations on that? So some important things that we covered with our accounts and lawyers together is for me as a young entrepreneur, looking down the road when we're selling, selling shares, taking care, you know, taking advantage of our capital gains exemptions. So we've come up with a tax structure for every restaurant where we are personally reserving shares that don't go to a corporation 
so that down the road we can personally sell, sell shares to manager, chef, anything like that, uh, so that it can go towards our personal capital gains exemption. So super important to have these people involved from the beginning so that they can help you build the roadmap of how you're going to get there. Because you put the time in and you put the effort in and you put the money in now to build the proper structure uh, with the proper goal in end, you're going to save so much money in the long run instead of, okay, we got another restaurant. So bring in the lawyers and the accountants. How are we doing this now? Let's restructure again. And then how does that look with the, after the other restaurant? And okay, we're bringing in partners and this and that. So now we have the framework today to really start to grow the way we want to without having enormous legal bills all the way down the road. Yeah, I, I couldn't emphasize that strong enough to anybody who's listening that's thinking of getting a business started as well too. When we got our first restaurant launched, we didn't have a, uh, a pot to pee in uh, or a window to throw it out. But at the end of the day, we knew that it was really important to get the fundamentals in place. You know, we got one of the big five accounting firms to help us with our structure initially. And we wanted to, we thought that eventually we would own more than one restaurant. And so we, we sat down and spent quite a bit of time with them on building out our business plans so we could go to banks and turn around and go to shareholders. You know, at the end of the day, we were people that knew how to generate profits in restaurants as former general managers, but we really didn't understand how to pitch to shareholders. You know, at the end of the day, that really helped us a lot because, you know, if you're just getting off the ground and you're starting a small business, most, most often, I think the vast majority of time, you know, you're funded by the three Fs friends, family, and fools. And, uh, and so that's how we get off the ground. But it's really important to have the accounting and the lawyer in place to get partnership agreements put together. Because quite often, you might not even know what that should look like. But if you, if you get with the right professional, they can, they, they've had enough experience to see a lot of bad ones. So they can advise you as a business partner or an owner, when you get in, what kind of, how do you want this to be structured? You know, I know for ourselves, it was complicated because we wanted to optimize small business deductions. And so we kind of set each restaurant up as a new entity. And I know that we're up to $250,000 a year in oversight fees from our accounting, outside accounting. And I talked to my CFO about that internally now. I said, that's a big nut. I mean, did we get advice <laughs> on how to do this to make a lot of money for the accounting firm? And we turned around and he thinks that Annually, we have more than $750,000 in savings that flow through to shareholders by getting that structure right in the first place. So it's critical, critical that you, you get with the professionals early and let them advise you. And if they're good professionals and they're listening to this podcast, you'll charge those people a little less to start with, build your relationship, because if you get it right, you water the flowers in that garden, they might grow into a quarter million dollar a year client or more. Try and think outside the box as well, because we... You know, we made sure that we got not just our regular lawyer and our accountant in, but we got a taxation lawyer. We got a family lawyer involved because, yep. you know, we live in a world where things happen and, and, and relationships break up. And, and we really, again, from the, the beginning, just wanted to cover all of our angles. How does this look from a taxation standpoint? How does this look from a family law perspective? If, you know, there's a divorce that happens, if there's a, a breakup, if there's a split up, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen. Looking at a lease, you know, I look at it kind of the, the same way. You're, you're jumping into a contract that is basically the lifeline of your business. You got to get it right from the beginning before you sign on the line um, because it's going to save you down the road 
And again, you've touched on it before, Brad, but like it's an industry which is just notorious for people kind of getting in, not really know what they're getting into. And I yep. think leases is one of those things that are so crucial. So if it's, a, you know, a commercial real estate agent is, and a good one, because I can tell you right now that there is a lot of not great ones out there. And, you know, getting someone that understands lease contracts, spend the money to have your lawyer and your real estate agent look over those contracts four, five, six times. Uh, don't be afraid to ask and push for things that you want to see in your business. And the prime example is this last lease that we signed. I mean, I will say, disclaimer, being on the signing end of a lease right now, especially in the restaurant space coming out of COVID is a fortunate position to be in. So yeah. uh, we, we scored pretty big on, on the one that we got, but it takes talking to professionals and it takes combing through these things to realize the things you can ask for. And just know that any contract is, is just words on paper and, and, and you can ask for anything in whatever form you want. Uh, they might say no, but I mean, until you ask, you don't really know. How important is it to have professionals that have experience in your specific industry? It may vary for other industries, but specifically for restaurants. I'll go back to commercial real estate agents, which I think is a prime example of one that you can, you can kind of get burned on because restaurants aren't exactly a big ticket item for a lot of uh, commercial real estate agents, unless you're, you know, signing the massive 10,000 square foot type of spaces, but the local restaurant, yeah, yeah, they, they might like your, they might like your model, Brad, but for the guy like me, we aren't the big uh, industrial warehouse uh, on the outskirts of the city that are signing for 20 years. We're in a high risk category and I had to go through a five or six, maybe commercial real estate agents until I found someone that actually just, you know, cared about my industry and really understood what was going on because I'd, I would be shown spaces that someone would be walking me through and go, Hey, isn't this great? And I'm just like, yeah, but the floor is kind of heaving at a 30 degree angle. Like, don't you think maybe we should get that looked at? Finding someone that, that understands your industry is, is crucial, especially, I mean, in, in restaurants, again, which I come back to, there's a lot of intricacies in, in restaurants that I, I'm sure we'll find in a lot of other industries, but are particular to, to what we do. And yeah, I, I can't stress enough someone someone that's educated on, on what you do and what you need those spaces for is, is really crucial. I, I will double down on what Mike says. I'll, I'll add a little color to it. I think Mike will find that he's absolutely fishing in a barrel, which is the second or third restaurant in a small space that at the end of the day, it's a space that has a really low success rate. I think Mike will find that once he gets into these spaces, and has success with them and is what you call a performing tenant. I think what, what he'll find is he becomes more attractive to the real estate people because they can solve leasing problems for clients. And next thing you know, you move into the rock star category. If you can get two or three or four of these open, all of a sudden landlords start coming looking for you when Burnley Place has a brand of being able to take often failed locations and be able to make them performing. I would talk and say that the person that helps you with, with finding real estate, it's critical they understand the restaurant business and it's critical they're tied in on it. It's almost like the whole hotel space has got dedicated people only to that. Those are the people you work with. When it moves up the food chain or out the food chain to things like lawyers and accountants, then I think it becomes more generic and it's just more the quality of that person. You're getting the fit with the right lawyer. We've incredibly fortunate enough to have landed with Kristen Whitman and she's been a spectacular lawyer for us like just 
a complete game changer because I've dealt with lots of lawyers with other companies and situations and, and trust in that process is so important in getting the right fit with the person. So the personality works and they really do start to understand your business. And it's about building that relationship. They understand your vision, the accountants and the lawyers, and you start working like any team a little bit more smoothly together. I, I'd like to kind of, if you don't mind, Mike, I'd like to, you know, like, I think we can pivot back across. I'll lead the way on this because people are going to be out looking to raise money from friends, fools, and family. And, and I joked with that, but it is quite accurate in businesses. But I know when we first set out and did this, I could sit down and build a perform a financial statement because I did it all the time when I was a general manager. Once we understood the build out costs and the full model, we, we sat down and we would just say, hey, if this restaurant does X in sales, I know what I'm going to generate as a bottom line. How do I price my shares to shareholders? And a lot of times when we were just starting out, we had no money. What we did is we raised 100% of the capital to build our restaurants from shareholders and basically sold 70% of the shares. We reserved 30% of the shares that we gave back or we retained ourselves. But the whole formula and people would say, well, do you think people that are shareholders are going to like that? Or are they going to feel a little ripped off? We found as long as we had transparency initially and we said, this is what we're planning on doing because we're signing the guarantees on the lease. We're signing on the bank loan and we have a lot of risk. And, you know, we're, this is the sweat equity portion for us. And so initially, uh, you know, the people, they were okay with that. And there's always one thing that they'll be okay with that if they get the return on investment. They don't really care what the owners retain. I'm sure it's like that all the way up the food chain with venture funds. And when people are investing massive amounts of money and wealth, they don't really care what the, what the person running that venture fund's making as long as they're making their return on investment. And we really lived by that. We kind of said, listen, since we don't have a lot of rich relatives falling out of the trees, we're going to live and die by a return on investment. And I know internally, because of the fact that restaurants don't have much asset value, you know, we, internally we said, listen, we, we're going to be striving for kind of a 20% return on that investor's money when we launch. We'd like them to get them the money, the money back in their original investment back in their pocket between three to five years, and then hopefully double it after that. So over, let's say, an eight-year period, they get that initial investment back in their pocket, they double it. We overachieved on that on the first three restaurants we built. We underachieved a few after that. We've, had, we've been all over the map, but we've used that as our guiding light. We always thought if we could get to about a 20% annual return on investment, we would attract those shareholders back time and time again. So Mike, when you look at your vision, I know it really helps when you build a restaurant for a lot less because you have to raise a way less capital and you can get a way better return for people. But I haven't even asked you this, but have you looked at that internal rate of return, what you want to achieve for yourself personally? The way it works now is, by the way, we put most of the money in our own restaurants. I don't look for shareholders as much anymore. I might in one of our newest ventures down in Fort Lauderdale, but usually I don't. Uh, but Mike, how, how, are you, how are you tackling that piece of when, you, when you're on the infancy stage of developing your reputation to shareholders and building your platform out? What, what kind of return do you want to get them back if the business performs to the level that you think it should, all risk notwithstanding? We're kind of in a unique scenario in that like we're in what I'm going to call the discovery phase of this whole this whole thing. Because... You know, we've been operating King and Bannatine, which is a quick service restaurant for eight years now. And I know the financials on that model very well. I know that uh, on a good year, we're doing 15% cash return. And part of, you know, me growing as, as, an, as a restaurateur was, was crossing over into that full service segment, which is kind of a new thing for me. So just kind of looking at the model that you've operated in, which is the franchise model where 
it's pretty standard across the board, what it costs, what you're going to churn out, what your costs are. But for us, you know, especially with this full service model now, it is kind of an unknown on, I, I build performance on what we think we're going to do in sales and everything, but the labor model is a little bit different. You know, there's a lot more work that goes in on the back end, but we're allowed to charge higher ticket items. I'm going from what is a low margin, high volume business to much more of a higher margin, low volume business. We don't know just yet how that's going to look. What we do know is the portion that we're comfortable giving up uh, for ownership right now, and we know what we're spending uh, going into it. So we have a good idea where that's going to be. But this first full service location NOLA that we're doing is kind of acting is going forward the template of what are we going to turn out? If we spend this and we have this labor model and this is kind of what we're looking at, how do we replicate that again going forward? And what does that equity structure look like? Mike, did you raise 100% of the uh, money needed in equity or did you use some form of bank financing? I know your first time around that you had uh, bank financing available to you through, uh, I think it was a government-backed small business loan. And uh, this time, are you using that framework again? And then I can pivot across and tell you the structure that we're using. Yeah, we, we are doing actually the same. So uh, still myself and my original partner that we have put up the capital to get the bank loan. And it is a Canadian small business financing loan, uh, which anybody starting out, I would recommend it's a, it's a really good program. Yeah. It's a little tedious because there's a lot of paperwork when the government's involved, but uh, you're basically only on the hook for 25% of the loan if things do go south. The bank that we've been dealing with on this new one has been fantastic. Uh, so yeah, we are financing uh, through the bank and then uh, the, the equity portion is just for myself and my uh, original partner. And what ratio were you... Uh, were you like half in the uh, in the loan and another half in shares? Or were you able to do that a little bit, little more on the bank piece of it this time? Uh, this time around, a little bit more on the bank side. When we first yeah. went, uh, you know, as the rookie off the street who is selling a big dream of how great this restaurant is going to be, um, yeah. it, you know, this this financing program is is quite nice um, for anyone not in the restaurant industry. Well, they'll finance it up to ninety percent of of your fixed assets. Um, but automatically in the restaurant business, he says, uh, you're going to need 50% up. Um, and that's just because yep. of the, the failure rate in our industry. Like we're just known for it. And so we, we did the 50% up on the first unit and this, fortunately you come out and now you have a bit of a reputation. Uh, we only had to have 35% up front and financed, uh, the remaining. Yeah. It's interesting because the model we work is not entirely different than what you do. Um, we, you know, once we crossed the border, things became way more complicated. You know, we had established banking relationships inside Canada to scale our business. But, you know, you were mentioning how much it would cost. But when I first broke into the business, we could build a full service restaurant for $750,000. So I'm not sure how long that goes, but I think somewhere around Confederation, maybe 130 years. <laughs> but um, but um, what was interesting is that, that we've tried to keep our ratios kind of similar. At the end of the day, we use shareholder money. We use banking money and we use uh, landlord money through tenant improvement. The most expensive money is in tenant improvements. And I'm just learning some tricks around that now so that we don't make the same mistakes we used to in the past where we would get a TI loan. Uh, largely, that's financed by a landlord over the first 10 years of your lease. And so uh, if, you've got, if you stick around for 20 years, you're not getting a loan for the second 10-year term, but you're still paying the term. So we're we're changing how we do that. But in, in, if we started out for $750,000, most 
high-end full-service restaurants in our segment now are between three to four million dollars to build. So you're looking at, you know, maybe hundred dollars a square foot and ten in improvements. That might get you somewhere in the you know seven hundred thousand to a million, and then maybe a couple of million from shareholders and a couple of million from the bank as we transition across the border. We found BDC's arm of CDC that that grows in the states to be a lifeline to us. They like to help Canadian businesses that are moving across the border finance, and they've done the first few jobs, and they've been a fantastic banking partner for us. We're really good to work with. I think they're in a slightly higher risk area down there, and they don't fall under the same pressures of other banks to have a performing loan portfolio. They're they're given a little bit more latitude, but they've been a great partner for us working for. But we use that kind of formulation. And, and I know that, you know, at the end of the day, there are people that be out there in any form of business that are listening, that will be, you know, trying to figure out how to raise money when you get your first venture going. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the one nice thing about shareholding loans is that you're not signing personal guarantees. So there's less risk that comes with shareholder loans, but your reputation's on the line. And you have to make sure, you know, with us, like I said, you were talking about the franchise model. One of the most common things in the franchise world before we got in that I was aware of mostly is the absolute crappy returns most restaurants were getting for their, even unsuccessful ventures. And I remember just thinking, well, that's, I just don't believe in that. I think if people take a risk and put their capital that you're obligated to make sure that you you get uh, the inappropriate return to people. That's your reputation's built on that. And you can suck people into investing in restaurants because there's a lot of flash to it, but at the end of the day, I just think there's an integrity issue when you succeed, but your your shareholders don't feel that. So we're pretty committed to doing the best we can on that. If we win, we want our shareholders to win. And if we lose, we understand we're all in this world. You know, we're all grown adults and uh, the, every business venture doesn't succeed. But, you know, at the end of the day, and we're, tr- we're as committed as we can to try to get that value back to shareholders, you know. But I would like to ask, Mike, I think you've done an amazing job of kind of saying, you know, where you started, how you've pivoted a couple of times, creating your platform of Burnley Place Hospitality, not wanting to be in a plane and running around. And really, it sounds like a crystal clear kind of what you consider medium term vision as you're adapting. I, I, I haven't even asked you this. And we get together once in a while and, and when and Mike and I run into each other at the lake and annoy everybody to death when we talk business for two hours uh, our significant others just think that's awesome. What I'd like to, because I'm really quite curious, Mike, fast forward 10 years, if things go the way you think they will, what, is, what does your life look like? What's Burnley Place look like? And paint a picture for the listeners that are out there that they might want to scale a business too, because you, you know, you're a talented guy and I know you're going to succeed. So what does your world look like 10 years from now? I think I go back to what we kind of talked about at the beginning, which is when I made a decision to try and open my own restaurant part of that decision was designing a lifestyle that I really wanted. And you, you also mentioned that, you know, it, the assets in restaurants aren't necessarily uh, always uh, worth much at the end of the day. And uh, when I'm thinking about long-term and building wealth, you know, this business that I operate in is their cash flow machines. You know, as, as long as they're hitting their numbers, they're pumping out cash, but there's no real value unless you go into the franchise model where you build something that's grand that someone can take over. Um, you know, restaurant equipment is not worth a lot once it's been used uh, once or twice. So I really started thinking about just long-term, what's the end goal in, in building wealth for myself? And real estate was something that always had piqued my interest. After watching, uh, watching 
Michael Keaton and the founder, I, uh, you know, a couple of things got sparked in, in interest um, and in realizing that there's, there's a way to build wealth in this industry um, through ownership of real estate. And, and, and that was kind of where I planted the flag of the end goal and started to work backwards. And so it was, you know, that's where I want to be. How do we get there? And ownership of buildings that maybe contain residential or commercial units is kind of the end goal. Well, how do we fill those spaces with concepts that I know how to build and can generate cash flow? But if they don't work out, you know, we can still collect on the rent. Um, and then it became a question of, well, how do we start filling those spaces? How do we become a place that's known for, you know, generating, generating these concepts? And how do we create a steady stream of people that want to work with us so that we can fill these spaces? And that all came back to, you know, working at the sandwich shop and was kind of, how do I get out of this sandwich shop and prove to myself and to the people out there that we can build different concepts, that we're the, the people that you want to work with to develop your concept? And how do we generate a buzz so that we have a steady stream of talented people who want to work with us so then we can plug them into these spaces that we own the land that they sit on and generate long-term wealth for the company? So for me, in 10 years, I would love to be owning mixed-use buildings in, in high-density neighborhoods that have a, a commercial and a residential component where we are filling the commercial spaces with concepts that we are building uh, using people that we've grown throughout the company naturally and organically that we're feeding into new spaces and concepts. Because again, I, I, I talked about it before, like my passion lies in the design and the building of restaurants and the building of teams and the execution of that. And that's a way to build the lifestyle that I want, where my job is dedicated to building brands and concepts, but they're also going to this larger goal of building a portfolio of real estate that is going to generate actual wealth in the long term. Yeah, I love that because you'd be that performing tenant in your own facility then. So you'd be doing one of the great hacks in the restaurant business. Like you said, they're great cash flow models, but you don't really own an asset when you get to the end of your run, 10, whether that be 20 years. You know, if you've got a high performing restaurant, you can sell it for an, a multiple of EBITDA, but that's that's the that's a unicorn. More often it's a cash flow model for however long it survives, and then you're selling it for dimes on the dollar, not even pennies on the dollar. It's not often that, uh, you know, the restaurateur uh, sells the old restaurant at peak performance to get their, their dollar out of it. You know, it's, it's when, when you're hot, you're hot and you're in it and, and you're riding the wave. Yeah. Um, you're not thinking about getting someone in to buy the thing. Yeah, I do like that. And you can always flush out your kind of real estate strategies and move along. If you've got that cornerstone where you can be a performing tenant inside the place, you might be able to find businesses that or buildings that can be acquired for a heck of a deal because they haven't just haven't been able to succeed on leasing the ground space. But if you can provide that solution and be a driver of value for that, you get a win on every area. I really love the idea of, of that vision, Mike. And it's, I'm sure you're going to achieve it. Yet. You've been able to knock the ball out of the park on everything you've done so far. And I really like that idea. I think it's a way to build wealth and to hedge your bets in a, in a business where the risk model is a little asymmetric in the wrong way. Yeah, it's, it's a little unique. I mean, like it's again, um, in the end, if you want to build uh, long-term wealth and a portfolio of, of assets that have value, restaurant business isn't always the one to be in. And um, yep. so I really just had to make a conscious decision of one, taking a step back and recognizing the space that I work in, which I think a lot of people 
would find value in doing is, is being able to take a step back and look at the business from the outside and look at the environment that you operate in, uh, you know, like, and, and be true with yourself about what you have and, and, and what is it and where does it operate and, and, and how can you pivot in certain ways to try and build a business that maybe shifts gears to a direction that you want to head? Yeah. And Mike, I guess, you know, because everybody's listening, it's so funny because when we first get into this too, and then when, when we're looking for people, when I look for people to partner with, I, I think it's intuitive. I, I was touring with uh, one of the lead executives for uh, Northland property group that handles all the restaurant divisions. They were out in town. We spent time together and they were talking about, Hey, you know, how have you guys been able to build this? You know, you're, you've been able to find and attract and retain some really talented people that have grown with you since they're kids. And I think, you know, the, I saw this in you early on as well too, which is some people, you know, choose the restaurant business, but sadly for people like yourself and myself, the business chose us. We didn't, we didn't have a choice. And you're really looking for the people that, whether they like it or not, the, the industry's picked them. Do you still, you, you, you work your, you work really long and tough hours and you have, especially getting your brand off the ground, you still love the industry. Is that part of the main reason you're in this? Oh yeah, totally. And, and for me, it was also a little bit of a combination of discovering what it is about the industry that I love and yeah. hospitality is the number one thing in there. But, you know, I, over the years that I, the chef left and I was the one carving meat up at the counter, I, I, I discovered that that particular part of the industry wasn't where I envisioned myself. And what I discovered was my passion was in, again, the, the, the long-term strategy, the, the taking, a, you know, an idea from inception to actually standing in the dining room full of people, which we got to do last week for the first time with this brand new yeah. concept. My passion is in the design, the build, the chase of the space, and then hiring a team, a management team, and, and coaching them on executing at a high level and, and just watching what our core values are just kind of coming to life. And, you know, this new space has been amazing for that because it's the first time that I've had an executive level team that's pulling things off. Mike, did you enjoy that collaborative experience of like, you'd have your vision of space place, but you know, the moment you get into the lifeblood of it, which is what are our dishes going to look like? What's a wine list? I'm, I'm assuming that was a way more collaborative process. Yep. You know, and you, you're coming in with one of Canada's top chefs. So they're coming to the table with their vision and ideas. And was that a, was that an enjoyable new thing for you where you were co-collaborating with a higher level team? Yeah, hundred percent. And like, that's just the way that we operate. And I'll never forget the first time I sat down with Emily after she kind of gave me the go ahead that she was on board, I just laid it out for her in full transparency. I was like, this is how this is going to work. You have a style that we want to nurture and we want that to come through in the brand. And so we did a bit of a branding exercise. And when I stood in the space and I talked to Emily about the menu and, you know, her style of cooking and who she is as a person, we came up with four words that we kind of wanted to build our brand around. And that was fun, unique, simple, and elegant. And they represent her food, they represent the vibe that we wanted to go for. They represent the brand. And when you come into the restaurant, it shows that from start to finish, we had those words as kind of our, our guide while we were building this brand and building this space. And from the beginning, it was a collaborative process. With Emily and I, yeah. it was, it was okay, here's a credit card, start cooking. She would come to me every three or four days with 
seven or eight dishes and we'd sit down together and we'd taste them. And it was from day one, open and honest. What do we like about this? What do we not like about this? This is not good. Put it to the side. This reason's great. We don't need to touch anything about this. This one, we need to change this. Let's try this. Make some notes. And she would go back and work away. And then K version 2.0 comes out and we re-go through the process. Same thing with the wine list. Same thing with even the design of the, the space and the furniture. I am a firm believer of working in teams and leveraging the diversity of your people to really yeah. achieve the best possible product at the end because I am not the guy who knows everything. I am the first person to throw my hands up and go, sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. Please explain that to me. I don't care. I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. I need to surround myself with the smartest people in the room. That's how we are going forward building brands is, is as a team. And it's really exciting to surround yourself with a team that gets excited as you do to get things done. Yeah. You know what I like so much about that, Mike, is that when you said those four core words, like I haven't had a chance to spend a lot of time around Emily yet, very little, just watched her working in the space. But since I'm a veteran of this and just watching her in action in her kitchen, going through the room, those four core items that you talked about actually describe her perfectly. You know, she's uh, a really unique chef that has a, a, a gentle personality and that's not always the case and that's rarely the case. Uh, with with passion and with talent. So I, I really like that. And it's the interesting part about the restaurant space that everybody from the outside looking in thinks this is super cool, which it is. But, uh, but you know, there's so many fundamentals in place that are just the same as the cement plant or just the same as the people selling tires or selling hospital equipment. There's core com- components that overlap completely. But, you know, you roll it back into that artistic side, which I love to see your passion boil out. It's been a real privilege being able to observe and watch two experts in this this industry that I know very little about, but can relate so much of what you're saying to my own business, and I know that you're providing a lot of value. What comes across, though, is that you're both true leaders and surrounding yourself with the right people, uh, with vision, with passion, with respect, and uh, I just appreciate you so much being here and sharing your insights. Oh, thanks. This is a lot of fun. Yep. Thanks, Polly. Wow. We could go on and on. And for those who aren't in the restaurant industry, there's so much that you've shared that will be applicable to anybody in business. So I thank you so much for your time and your expertise and also for all that you do to make restaurants available to us who so need them. Uh, especially right now, and I will look at them differently. It's not just about the food and the experience. It's about appreciating all that goes in behind the scenes. So thank you both. And for those that are still listening, we want to remind you that we have all of the information that Mike and Brad have provided in the show notes. There were some references to programs that you can perhaps use within your own businesses. So be sure and go there at vexit.com forward slash podcast, and you can see this episode as well as the others there. Thank you so much for listening. Please note that the conversation in this podcast is for informational and learning purposes and does not constitute legal, financial, or business advice. The Ask of Expert podcast is a production of Exit and distributed globally by the Sound Off Media Company. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. 
And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at averyrich.com.